Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Give Me a Fast Ship, Tim McGrath. Tim McGrath, author of Give Me a Fast Ship, The Continental Navy and America's Revolution at Sea. Why'd you call it Give Me a Fast Ship? That's a great question, and, and we're waiting to see if it's going to get us in any kind of trouble. Uh, there's a quote from John Paul Jones, or legend has it, and it was cited for many years, Brian, is uh, uh, give me a fast ship for I intend to go in harm's way. And the actual quote, I believe, is I do not intend to command any ship that is not fast for I intend to go in harm's way. And so when we were working on this project, I, I threw the title out and a couple of the history professors and, and, and professionals at the, the Navy Yard in D.C., the Early History Center, and I said, we get in any kind of trouble with this? And they said, no, that's a terrific title. And as long as you're using the correct quote in the beginning of the book and you don't put quotation marks around the title, then you should be fine. But he said there might be somebody that does a review that will say, that's not the right quote, but whichever. But uh, it just struck us as a, a, a good title for what the story's all about. Hey, you've been on this program before for your book about John Barry. Yes, sir. What's your interest in the, the Continental Navy as opposed to the Army? Well, uh, to be honest with you, this book is an offshoot of the John Barry book. Uh, that had done very nicely and no small part thanks to Pennsylvania books and, and, and the interview. But I think uh, uh, when we were approached about doing another project and kicking around some ideas. And I mentioned to a couple people the Continental Navy. Uh, there's a wonderful, he's a professor emeritus uh, at the uh, Naval Academy, Craig Simons, who's a terrific author and a really charming guy. The problem with Craig is that he's also like Dick Clark. He's older than I am and he looks like he's 19. And he was a guy who kind of pushed me over the edge with this, what are you nuts? A publisher wants to pay you money to do, and you know where everything is, and the research should be minimal, and so that was what pushed it. But then digging into it, to be honest with you, the, the stories are just so remarkable, uh, as you might know from, from reading it, that uh, all you want to try to do is, is tell their, these guys' stories and get out of their way. Well, the obvious question is, what was the continental government, the revolution, thinking, taking on the British Navy at that time? I think it was a combination of, of uh, hubris, you know, some degree of cockiness, and also necessity. Um, ironically, the, the congressman who pushed it the hardest was John Adams, who had been to sea once. I think he was at a fishing trip at uh, Cohasset that was about 15 miles outside of Cape Cod, and that's the farthest he ever got before he got into this. But being a New England congressman, he was very aware that the British Navy was harassing villages from Rhode Island up into what is now Maine, but at that point was still part of Massachusetts. In fact, one of the interesting things uh, 
to learn was while Congress was debating whether or not to have a Navy, uh, they're getting reports that this British captain is burning this town and this British captain is firing on this town. Uh, Newport uh, in Rhode Island was attacked. Uh, Falmouth, which is now Portland, Maine, was fired on and, and pretty much destroyed all the while while Congress was debating this. But they needed some kind of protection for the merchant vessels and to protect the harbors like Philadelphia which was the major harbor in the uh, colonies back then. And uh, Adams just thought it was a, a, a good idea to see what they could do. Uh, his biggest opponent was, uh, was also one of the biggest guys in Congress, uh, physically Samuel Chase, who called it the maddest idea in the world and was very sarcastic about it. But even by the end of the debate, he was won over for the need of that, obviously having Baltimore for you know one of his uh, you know, cities he was representing in Congress. And uh, they started out with five merchantmen that they converted into ships of war. Uh, Did they have money for building a navy? They set aside money. And what was interesting was how, how they lowballed it. Um, they purchased uh, two ships, then another two, then another two. And then uh, they decided to set aside about three-quarters of a million dollars to build 13 frigates. And that didn't come near to covering the cost. They did build all 13. But towards the latter part of the war, they were looking at spending a million dollars just to renovate a frigate, just to improve it. So they really had no idea what they were getting into. Where'd they find capable officers? Uh, they actually had a few to pick from, and they didn't always pick the most capable first. John Barry, for instance, who was uh, the, the top captain in Philadelphia, which possibly probably means the, the, all 13 colonies, was at sea when they made the choice of who were going to be the first captains. And uh, there was a Rhode Island uh, congressman, Stephen Hopkins, who was a, an old mariner himself. And he was put on the committee to get the Navy started and uh, uh, with John Adams and a couple of the other congressmen. And he played them like a string section. Uh, by the time he was done, his brother Isak was going to be the Commodore, in fact was given the title Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Navy, the only naval officer to ever be called Commander-in-Chief. Uh, his nephew and Isak's son John became a captain. His uh, in-law, Abraham Whipple, became a captain. Uh, he, they, by the time it was done, he set aside two spot, spots for other political connections. Uh, Nicholas Biddle is one you mentioned. Nicholas was Biddle. His, his brother was? Yeah, Nicholas Biddle was Congress? a congressman, so he had the honor of, of telling him. And Nicholas, uh, God, what a remarkable man. He was still in his mid-20s when all this happened, and he'd already been to sea, served in the Royal Navy, and went on an uh, uh, exploratory voyage up towards the North Pole with a couple of uh, British ships and one of his shipmates was Horatio Nelson from the British Navy. In fact, there's a wonderful... Uh, this is Lord Nelson? Yes, yep. Uh, there's a wonderful piece from one of the captain's journals still survives, and he writes about being up as they get closer to the North Pole that one day it's so warm on the port side of the ship that they're watching the tar running off the standing rigging, while on the starboard side they're watching the ice come closer and closer to trap in the ship. But Nicholas is a remarkable young man. He's, he's fearless, he's got a great sense of humor, and he really was, uh, or, or should have been, uh, the top captain 
Well, you in tell a story group. in the in a book where he sort of single-handedly quells a mutiny at the Lewis Delaware yep. jail. <clears throat> yep, they're about to embark on their first cruise as uh, the Continental Navy, and they've uh, they're laid over at Cape Henlopen, and there's a few guys that have deserted, and there's one fellow that almost sounds like the typical bad guy in one of those 1940s westerns, and he's pretty much he's in jail, but he's pretty much taken over the jail, and and they're armed. And when Biddle finds out about it, he takes a pistol with him and, and goes in and has the uh, batters down the door. And this gentleman, a fellow named Green, he says, uh, you know, you come any step further, you know, I'll, I'll kill you. And Biddle says, if you don't aim well, you're a dead man yourself. And pretty much the next thing is Green drops his musket, the other guys drop their weapons, and he stops the mutiny. And this gets out to the other sailors among the, the five ships in the fleet are saying, well, here's one guy we're not going to mess with. How was he as a captain? Terrific. They, his his uh, sailors and officers really, really loved him because he had done everything they had done, but he didn't have the airs that some of the other captains did. Uh, there wasn't anything that he asked them to do he wasn't willing to do himself. He drilled them incessantly in gunnery exercises, and back then the Navy was so bare in supplies <coughs> that their gunnery practices were actually like shadow boxing. You know, they would do all of the drills, you know, run out your guns, you know, take aim and, and go through the whole exercise without firing a cannonball. They might save one for the last round of the exercise, just to let them say, okay, we did it. but. Uh, Biddle was terrific. He, uh, his men, you know, worshipped them, especially compared to a couple of the other captains who were much more overbearing and dictatorial. You mentioned uh, frigates. The, the the Navy built thirteen mm -hmm. frigates. Was that kind of the standard warship? And can you describe a frigate? What kind of? Sure. How big was it? Sails, guns. They ranged anywhere from one hundred and twenty to close to one hundred and fifty feet in length. Uh, about 35, 37 feet at their beam, at their widest part, amidships. Um, the Navy set them up uh, to carry anywhere from 24 to 32 to 36 guns. Uh, they were three-masted vessels. And where the Royal Navy used them as what they've always called a frigate, the eyes of the fleet because the fleets, mostly their big warships were ships of the line, which are these massive uh, three and sometimes four and five decker ships that could carry as much as over 100 guns, let alone 30. Uh, Nelson's, for instance, uh, his flagship during the Napoleonic Wars, the Victory, is Britain's version of the Constitution. It's, you know, at, at the waterfront where people can tour and go through it. But uh, with the uh, Continental Navy, and later, the, the early United States Navy, the frigate, was the largest vessel that they wanted to do. The Continental Congress did order one ship of the line uh, that was built up in New England. And uh, among the captains assigned to getting her completed were John Barry and John Paul Jones. And uh, one of the senior captains in the Navy was very dismissive of anybody beneath him. He was ranked number one, James Nicholson. And he had said, bragging, Jones will never get the America, which was the name of the ship of the line, to sea. And he did, but he only got it to sea to give it to France to get it off Congress's expense records. And it was close enough to the end of the war that they just didn't have any use for it. 
When a, a ship went out to sea, one of the frigates set out, what was their mission? They were given orders by Congress, uh, sometimes broad, sometimes specific, uh, uh, usually to cruise certain waters along the American coast. Uh, sometimes they were basically told to harass a certain fleet or find British ships and capture them or take them. Uh, a good example of that, Brian, is uh, uh, Isaac Hopkins' first cruise. Uh, he's ordered to uh, sail from Philadelphia to Virginia, which is now in the hands of the coast of Lord Dunmore, the royal governor. And he has a small fleet, and he also has quite an uh, unofficial fleet of, of loyalist privateers. And Congress wants Hopkins to go down and destroy them. Uh, but they give him a, a window saying, if you don't think that's the best thing to do, then cruise further south and wreak havoc elsewhere. And he kind of uses that sentence as a get-out-of-jail-free card. He does not believe the Navy's ready to confront Royal Navy ships. Uh, he bypasses Virginia and uh, goes down to Nassau and captures the forts at New Providence. And then coming up, he again bypasses uh, Virginia. And he really gets uh, pummeled for it, both by Congress and, and history. But he runs into one uh, British frigate. He bypasses Philadelphia, too. He's supposed to return home, but he goes to his home, which is in Rhode Island. And his five ships take on one British frigate, uh, the Glasgow. And uh, the Glasgow escapes, but it's clear who the winner is. It's almost like five kids jumping a pro boxer in an alley. You know, the, the guy gets away, but, you know, so they can't, they, oh, he ran away. But it's obvious who won that battle. What's the Continental Navy's first big win? Uh, Probably the, you could say the, the taking of the, the forts in uh, the Bahamas. Um, that certainly was a surprise, and it didn't work out quite as well as uh, they would have liked. The British were tipped off, so he didn't get all of the munitions and stores that he had hoped to do. Was the goal to just go down and steal all the supplies that what were here and not to he, occupy? Yeah, not to occupy. It wasn't, it wasn't a situation of that so much as to bring supplies back. Uh, the first real victory is actually John Barry on April the 7th of 76. He's been given command of a, another converted merchantman, a brigantine called the Lexington. And uh, he had spent the first six months of the Navy's history uh, refitting the ships. He was one of the three gentlemen in charge of preparing the ships for war here in Philadelphia when there were lesser captains that had already left. But once he got a hold of the Lex Lexington, Brian, he just went to town. Uh, he captured a British sloop off the Virginia Capes. Um, then when he came back, uh, he participated in a really tough battle in what's now Wildwood Crest, uh, Turtle Gut Inlet, where uh, uh, three ships under his command, he takes the barges and uh, <clears throat> unloads a merchantman that's run aground in Turtle Gut Inlet, which doesn't exist anymore. If anybody's interested, it's where, uh, right by the lake, in Wildwood Crest is. Uh, and uh, right when it gets to a point where the British warships are, have already tried to attack and they've been pummeling them with broadsides, that he runs a, uh, a fuse with what barrels are left uh, and puts them in the hold and in the cabin. And once the British boarding party gets there, the, the ship, the fuse goes off and they said you could hear the explosion 40 miles from Philadelphia. Uh, 
but Barry's really the first victory. And when the Edward, when the captured ship comes up, there's uh, documentation in the newspapers and a couple of diarists who say the town just went nuts, like, look what we did. And I think that was uh, 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 kind of nice since it was a Philadelphian that did it. You talk about the concept of prizes and how a, a ship would attack another ship and take it and then that's the prize. What, what would they do with the prize and what would they do with the people on board and what do they do with the ship? Once they captured a ship, which then became their prize, uh, then the crew and the officers were entitled to shares. And the Continental Congress, you know, they certainly are an example for Congresses that came later up to and including now. Uh, they made it clear to the sailors that they were giving out better percentages of prizes than the Royal Navy did. What they weren't telling everybody was that Congress was going to take half of the proceeds once that ship and its goods were sailed, and then you got that percentage. And, you know, they must have thought that, you know, sailors can read the stars and they can do all these miraculous things handling a ship in the age of sail, or any age, when you think about what they do in today. But that they must have thought that their mathematical skills were woeful. And it didn't take long for the sailors to go, what's this all about? And uh, uh, the privateers that were put in place by Congress, which were another help towards the, the, the fight at sea, which were merchantmen that got congressional letters of mark permission to go attack British shipping, uh, they offered much higher and much more lucrative uh, uh, pay setups for the, for the sailors and for the captains. So the privateers are like legalized pirates? Yeah, pretty much. They get official permission from the, their government to, uh, to raid enemy shipping. And then uh, there, but there's no, none of that money goes back to Congress. You know, so the, and the sailors immediately got paid. A, a lot of the Continental captains, at one point, if they didn't have a ship, turned privateer. One of the reasons was so they could get paid because a lot of the uh, officers and sailors, you know, went through the whole revolution without getting fully paid for their services. So they would attack merchant ships. Yeah. Would merchant ships be unarmed? Uh, no, they usually had a, a couple of guns, but they certainly were easier prey than a, a British warship, whose gunners were. I mean. The British Navy was, you know, already for centuries the, the greatest navy in the world, and it certainly didn't change just because we showed up. But you, you talk about some voyages where they take 14 prizes or mm -hmm. large numbers of prizes. Mm -hmm. So if you have all those ships that you've taken, what do you do with them? Well, you put prize crews on them, uh, and they're basically skeleton crews, which these guys, being merchant captains, were used to. Uh, a merchant vessel, for instance, John Barry uh, got his first command about 10 years before the war, a schooner with a crew of five. If you look at what he could have used the crew easily four times that size so that they could have worked in shifts and so forth. But the more sailors a merchant hires, the more it's cutting into their profits. So they would put small crews on these prizes and then have them head to the closest home port, where once they were there, the the procedure was that they would be condemned, uh, they would be assessed for what their value was, and then they would be sold. Quite a few of the ships that were sold, there were prizes of the Continental Navy, became ships of the Continental Navy, like Barry's Lexington. Would they sometimes take the crew that was on the ship that they took and turn them into crew for their ships? Uh, no, they usually were returned or, or whatever, but they ran the risk of being captured. One of the things that happened with Nicholas Biddle early in the uh, war 
was he had a very successful cruise, captured several ships. But now, the more you're giving up of your men to sail the prizes home, the less prepared you are in case you run into a, a British ship of war. Uh, and two of his ships on this one were captured by the Royal Navy. Uh, one was sent down to Virginia, and uh, the crew, uh, uh, the, they had prisoners on the ship who took it back. And, uh, uh, but then the Americans retook the ship as they came into the Virginia Capes. The other was a case of where another Philadelphian, uh, an officer that really isn't well known, James Josiah, but was a good friend of Biddle's, was captured and he was one of the first officers, uh, uh, American naval prisoners put in the pr British prison ships uh, in Brooklyn on the East River that uh, were infamous. They were pretty much the Revolutionary War's version of Andersonville from the Civil War. Just horrible treatment, uh, which the British was were very matter of fact of. Uh, ironically, the Americans took much better care of captured British sailors and officers by far than uh, the Americans were taken care of by the British counterparts. You paint some pictures about Americans capturing British officers and inviting them in for tea or a glass of wine mm -hmm. and treating them like gentlemen. Oh, uh, they were. They were very uh, uh, civil with them. And uh, one fight later in the war, Barry basically has been wounded and, and he, he says to the captain once the battle's over and his frigate has beaten these two British ships, he says to the surviving British captain, your, your king ought to reward you with a better ship because he's so admiring of how well this young man, you know, captured it. And they always were, you know, so there was that kind of a civility, but that didn't necessarily translate to how they were treated by the British who still thought of them as rebels or in a lot of cases just outright pirates. At the start of your book, or the start of the Revolution, there was a Pennsylvania Navy? Yes, all the, the colonies had or started their own navies, uh, simply because the Continental Navy was not going to be near enough big to protect each and every port. Did they create the navy for the purpose of the war, or was there a navy ongoing while it was a good question. There were a couple that kind of, you know, were existed, but not quite in fact. But once the war started, the Pennsylvania Navy really got started after Lexington and Concord. In fact, Nicholas Biddle had a commission as an officer in the Pennsylvania Navy, which he then resigned once they made him a captain in the Continental Navy. What was life like for an ordinary sailor on a, we'll say, a, on a frigate? Terrible. It was absolutely terrible. It makes you wonder sometimes reading the logs and, you know, looking at what these men did for a living. It's trying to figure out, wasn't there something better? It certainly was a lot, just practically anything else was safer. Uh, but, uh, you know, the call to, to sea is a pretty romantic situation for anybody if they, if they're, they enjoy it. But it was, it was not a good life at all. The first thing that uh, you realized is once you went below deck, it stunk to high heaven. You had <clears throat> livestock, you had bilge water. Uh, uh, a sailor relieved himself on the head, which basically was a plank with a hole in it that was up by the bow of the ship. And quite often, sailors just decided to relieve themselves elsewhere. So you had all of these various sails or smells creating a rather unique aroma below deck. Uh, the, 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 there's, it can be very boring, but a lot of times it, it's extremely dangerous. I mean, the only thing you can compare it to on land is probably like a fireman 
where you're on duty and nothing's happening and all of a sudden, you know, here's a, a fire, whether it be one alarm or five alarms, but now you're going into a situation where you don't know what you're going to be, you know, dealing with in a couple of minutes. And storms <laughs> at sea certainly presented an awful lot of uh, risk to them. Uh, quite a few ships were lost. John Barry's uh, brother was a privateer who was lost at sea in a storm. Uh, it, it really isn't an easy way to, to make a living at all. And you're always wet. I mean, you know, no matter what's happening or how uh, lackluster the winds, you're always wet. What did they eat? Where did they sleep? Um, the men slept uh, forward in the, in the forecastle, the forecastle. And the food that they got was pretty much uh, out of barrels. Occasionally there would be some fresh beef or uh, poultry if they, uh, they brought their own livestock, but that wasn't every day. Uh, salt pork, salt, salted beef. Uh, one day they took a, uh, in the Continental Navy, they followed the British Navy with Banyan Day, which was usually a Wednesday where there was no meat at all. But they were given uh, uh, butter, which usually had been rancid. Uh, certainly soon the, the, the bread had weevils that sometimes they would uh, uh, try to boil off in, in, uh, in coffee. Um, the, food was just, uh, the food was just bad, uh, no matter how you, you cut it. How, how did they recruit people for these jobs? Um, people wanted, you know, a sailor, a sailor wants to be a sailor. And uh, uh, initially, they didn't have much trouble recruiting hands for the Continental Navy, but once it got out that Congress was being less than forthright with how they were paying them, the privateers, if a sailor was of a mind to fight, were certainly a, a, a more lucrative uh, and a less risky prospect because the privateers are not going to turn around. They'll, if they fight a British warship, it's because they're caught. Most of the time, they're going to show their heels and, and try to get away. But in the case of the, uh, the Continental Navy ships, you know, they're, they're there to fight the British Navy. Could a, a sailor on a privateer make a good amount of money? Yeah. They could, you know, the, the, the shares were, were good. And the, the most important thing was that they got paid on time. If they, once they got into port and their prizes were condemned and sold, they got the, the balance of the pay. Quite often they got in advance once they got in by the merchant because he wants to keep the crew and send the ship out again as soon as it's refitted. So they were much better taken care of, you know, in that regard. Well, the, the fighting ships, how far did they range? How far did they go from, from the east coast of the U.S.? Oh, geez. Well, some of them went over to British waters. Um, they fought battles in, off England? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, when he goes to France, is brought on uh, as a passenger on a, a British or, or ship converted for war called the Reprisal by a captain named Lambert Weeks, whose brother Richard, uh, a younger brother, is the only person who died at Turtle Gut Inlet. Uh, Weeks commanded one of the ships that Barry was overall in charge of. And Lambert's from Maryland. It's sad there's no picture that survives or portrait that survives a description. But he was incredibly brave. And uh, poor Franklin goes over with two of his grandchildren and is hopelessly seasick through the voyage. And once he, uh, uh, once they're ready to go to sea, Congress gives orders, you're not to engage in any ships. The most important thing we need to do is get Franklin to France. And uh, 
But once they get along the coast, they see a couple of British merchantmen and everything else, and, and Weeks goes to Franklin, you know, my, my orders say that once you've been delivered, I am to show England what it's like to have this kind of action in their backyard. And Franklin goes, well, why not start now? So he makes a couple of captures before he gets into France. And then uh, uh, that, that gives kind of a boost to Franklin's arrival, in fact. Was that a shock to the British that the colonists could take the war oh, to Oh, yeah, them? absolutely. In fact, the, the neatest guy that, that did all this, and if there's an unofficial hero to this book, is another Irish-born Philadelphian named Gustavus Cunningham. Uh, he's uh, uh, an interesting-looking fellow, reddish hair, the, the one portrait that survives of him, and then they've since uh, another gentleman did one about 40 years ago based on it. But he has this look like, now what happens? Uh, but he is as brave as they come. He's been sent over in the fall of 75, uh, before the Navy's even begun. Uh, he's been sent on an errand to get gunpowder from uh, uh, France or from Holland and bring it back because if Washington just doesn't have enough in Boston. And he runs into a few snafus in, in trying to get uh, that off the ground. But once he gets back into France in Dunkirk, Franklin arranges for him to get a couple of small ships. The first is a lugger and the next one is a cutter. They're about half the size of a frigate, but they're the favorite ships of smugglers because they're very fast, they're fore and aft rigged. He captures a, a packet uh, within a day of going out to, to sea in the English Channel, which is a ship that carries the mail back and forth, in this case from England to Holland. And he creates this international stir like you would not believe with a couple of his captures. France is neutral at this point, so they're not supposed to be doing anything, and there's an ancient treaty from 1713 that basically forbids any kind of activity like this coming from Dunkirk because the British feel they own it as much as the French do. And uh, just the uh, upheaval that he did, and then when he took his, the cutter out, which he renamed the Revenge, he actually captures more ships than John Barry and John Paul Jones combined. He's the real Errol Flynn. I mean, this man is so remarkable. Uh, Lambert Weeks makes a cruise around the British Isles with a couple of other American captains. Uh, and they do all this while France is trying to stay neutral or purporting to neutral. There's a wonderful foil in the book, Brian, a fella uh, named David Murray. He's Lord Stormont, and he is the King's ambassador to France. And he's this big, chesty guy that we found a portrait of him with the ermine cloak and everything. He's almost like, uh, any old movie fans are, are listening, he's almost like Edward Arnold from the old Frank Capra movies, Mr. Smith and Meet John Doe, just this remarkable foil. He's convinced that the French are plotting all these things behind his back and they're saying, no, 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 you know, no. and he's absolutely right because they are doing this. <laughs> And uh, his letters about this are, 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 are just wonderful to read because they're so frustrating. You know, like, they're doing this and there's nothing I can do about it. And ironically with Cunningham, I mean, King George probably was fit to be tied over George Washington and Ben Franklin and, you know, insert name here. But if there was one American he wanted to see hung, it was Gustavus Cunningham. Uh, there's letters about, you know, we've got to catch this guy, we've got to do, and then let's take care of him. Just because he was so successful? Oh, he was remarkable. Uh, he goes, one of his cruises, the ship needs repair, and he puts into an Irish village. And they're all upset, like, this is, this is this pirate, the Dunkirk pirate, they call him. 
And when he comes in, he goes, look, what does it cost? I need supplies. I'll pay you. What can I get to? And so they gladly give him the supplies he wants. And they repair his ship because he's like a fellow Irishman. And they're, thanks for coming, goodbye, you know, and everything else. He's, he's just the greatest. But he was captured. Yes, uh, a couple of times. When he's captured, he's been basically sent home uh, after a couple of years. He has embarrassed the governments of France and later Spain so badly as they try to be neutral that uh, finally Franklin and the other commissioners can't uh, support him any longer. So he sails to Martinique in the West Indies, and then from there he fights in a couple, makes a couple captures, and finally gets to go back to Philadelphia. Now, he's been married to a young lady who's in her early 20s still, and he hasn't seen her now in like three years, and a couple of children. And his ship, the Revenge, Congress says, we don't want to keep it in the Continental Navy, and it's sold as a privateer, but it's bought by the merchant firm of Cunningham and Nesbitt, who immediately turn to him and say, well, you keep it and just go privateering. And he's captured off the coast of New York, uh, he writes that he's basically tricked as he's been tricked himself. And once he realizes that this is an overpowering force, he just says her teeth were too many. When he's captured Brian, he's thrown into the New York jail. They throw 55 pounds. He's very f specific about the weight of chains on him, and he can't walk. It makes you almost want to, you know, it, it sounds kind of funny, but you think, how would it, you know, you can't put 55 pounds of chains on in this day and age and not look a little weird, like saying, I just want to see what this is like. But it has you wondering that he's got to move one leg and then set and move the other. They're not feeding him. And the British naval officer in charge at that time, a commodore named George Collier, assures him that he will not be hanged in New York. He'll be hanged in London. You end a chapter by saying he was sent off to London to yep. be hanged. And uh, he writes a letter to Anne, which is basically, goodbye, I love you, I'll meet you in heaven. He's convinced he's going to die. And this remarkable young lady writes a very long letter to Congress and then gets a petition signed by uh, literally a who's who of the American Revolution that's near Philadelphia. Congressmen, merchants, uh, famous, you know, Bishop White from Christ Church, uh, Robert Morris, uh, Continental Navy captains who are in port, and because uh, they've all heard that they're going to hang him. What had happened earlier was when Cunningham came back from one voyage to France, uh, he's been given a commission signed by John Hancock. Ben Franklin gave it to him, and Ben Franklin writes his name, Gustavus Cunningham. Here you go. The French confiscated when he returns while you know, in one of these imbroglios of being neutral, and he never gets it back. So once he's captured by the British, you don't have a Navy commission, you're a pirate. So Congress writes to the British government saying he has a commission. Ben Franklin writes from France to former friends in London saying, don't treat him like this. I signed the commission, or signed his name, it's signed. And it's Washington who gets the job done when he writes to the British uh, officials and he says, you hang Cunningham, I've got six British officers, I will hang. So they drop it. And they put him in Mill Prison in Plymouth uh, where he makes several attempts to try to get out. One anecdote is that he actually succeeded in disguising himself as the prison doctor. And he's able to walk out and tell somebody, goes, that's not him. Uh, 
but later he sets up, it almost reads like a Revolutionary War version of The Great Escape, minus Steve McQueen and the motorcycle. Uh, but he takes 53 guys out of that prison and winds up uh, escaping. And he manages to get not only out of the prison, but out of London and over to Paris. Yeah, there's one gentleman, uh, Thomas Diggs, or Diggies, a couple of different pronunciations, who Franklin has contacted. He's a Maryland merchant that's in London. Uh, basically, he's going to the different prisons and making sure that the American force, you know, prisoners have money and goods or whatever. And later he kind of goes the other way, which Franklin never forgives him for. And there's still some dispute whether he did it or not. But Cunningham takes three of the captured prisoners with him, and they head right for Diggy's home in London. And then he's able to get them on a Dutch ship to go back to, uh, to Holland. And while he's there, uh, he runs into John Paul Jones, who's fresh from his great battle at Flamborough Head. Uh, uh, against the Serapis while he's commanding the Benham Richard. And Jones writes to uh, uh, Franklin, you'll be happy to know Captain Cunningham is with me. So it, it, it's a remarkable story. Poor Cunningham gets captured again, sailing back from uh, Portugal to America. I think he gets captured on St. Patrick's Day. And again, they ship him to Mill Prison. And this time, his wife, Anne Hockley Cunningham, books a passage to go to France to see what she can do to get him freed. She's remarkable. I mean, her letter, she writes a letter to, to Franklin about her beloved Gusty, and Franklin's writing back because she intends to go to England to do what she can to get him exchanged or freed. And Franklin and others go, don't do that. Just go to the French port. She stays at Lorient, and we'll do what we can to, what we can do for you. Did they get him out? He gets himself out. Uh, this time again? he bribes a guard and escapes and finds his way back to Dunkirk. He's uh, an, a remarkable man. And for all of this that he's done, he never gets paid by the Congress for his services as a naval officer because he doesn't have that commission. There's a Virginia uh, legislator who's also a commissioner in France, Arthur Lee, part of the Lee family in Virginia. And he's both a lawyer and a doctor, so he has no time for anybody who he believes is beneath him, and he believes everybody's beneath him. But one of the people he really can't stand is Ben Franklin. And the subterfuge of the games he plays to try to get Franklin discredited or disgraced is incredible. But if you are a satellite or somebody's a fan of Franklin's, as Cunningham was, as John Paul Jones was, then Lee has no time for you. Lee is back in Congress after the war, and he convinces members of Congress not to give Cunningham his money because not only does he not have the commission, but since the commission was given by Franklin, it was strictly temporary. Were you tempted at some point to make Gustavus Cunningham his own book? It occurred to me. I mean, it, there's, there's not enough documentation to flesh some of the things out, like a couple of the anecdotes, like the doctors, uh, were in a couple different sources, but they weren't strong enough that you can say, this is terrific. But uh, there was another one that says, as they were poking their heads through the dirt the night he escapes with the 50 guys, that he's uh, caught a British guard in flagrant delecto with one of the Plymouth uh, young ladies, uh, and even talking to one guy saying, where'd you find this? You know, like, it, oh, it was in this book that uh, uh, 
Captain Barnes wrote back in, and he's one of the authorities on the Navy from the late 1800s. So, oh, okay, well, we'll put it in as such, but we have to say it's anecdotal, not, not a fact. But yeah, he, he's remarkable. Uh, he petitions for his money practically every year after the war. And then uh, in the quasi-war with France that was uh, fought in the 1790s, they figure he's too old to serve in the new United States Navy. And he again takes charge of a privateer and makes a couple of captures at that point. In the War of 1812, the poor guy's like 67 years old and still unpaid, and he goes, sign me up. I'll be glad to serve, and they're like, no, it's, it's a little bit past your bedtime. <clears throat> now, Benjamin Franklin is uh, a character who keeps popping up in your book mm -hmm. uh, from his perch in Paris. Uh, how, how much involvement did, did Franklin actually have in the war effort and in the Navy, and, and, uh, and, and what kind of clout did he have? He's involved in it very much from France. He certainly was involved in the, uh, the once he returns from England at the beginning of the war, uh, he does everything. I mean, at one point, Congress makes him postmaster general, and he's also helping design the defenses of the Delaware River and helping get the Navy started. Uh, he's convinced by the Delaware River pilots that some of them are extremely loyal, and why should we not be told where all these booby traps are? And he helps get that put together. Um, but from Paris, he can sign commissions? Or, oh, yeah. Or he's, he's given a stack of Continental Navy commissions to give out to whomever he thinks appropriate, Cunningham being the best example. But when the American captains arrive in France, they almost immediately go to France or Paris to pay their respects to Franklin and then fall under his spells as well as the city's. Uh, the only uh, exception to that rule is John Barry, who in his three different voyages to France never leaves the port of Lorient his correspondence with Franklin uh, is politely cold at best, and sooner or later Franklin adopts the same thing. You know, Barry shows up and he has orders and he's going to see them through, but he needs supplies, the ship needs refitting, he needs more sailors, and Franklin always commiserates with him, but then says, you know what, while you're here, why don't you go up to Amsterdam and pick up some gunpowder up there and then come back, or I want you to sail with these guys, and Barry won't do it. Uh, Franklin writes a letter to Robert Morris, which is ironically given to Barry to deliver, because this is the next ship that leaves, where he calls Barry a great man, but uh, bothered by unimportant things. And Barry doesn't know this, nor does he know that when Morris gets the letter, he writes back, he goes, no, he's doing what I told him to do. Uh, but Franklin's immensely influential. Uh, John Paul Jones is a great example because Jones is looking for always a better ship, more responsibility, something that, you know, he's, a he's five foot six with an ego that's six foot five. And you say that Benjamin Franklin was kind of a father figure to oh, John he was. Paul Jones. He really was. Franklin ador uh, adored him for what he could do, but also had that great capability he had with everybody, you know, how can I use this guy to further our cause. You say that John Paul Jones, if I can interrupt for a second, Jones possessed two traits no one ever questioned, unflappable courage and an actor's gift for the moment. Absolutely. He's, he's marvelous. Uh, he's, he's as brave as they come. He was a terrific sailor. In one voyage towards the end of the war uh, off the coast of uh, France in the Bay of Biscay, uh, their hit was such a tempest. And afterwards, as 
Jones is successful in, in keeping this ship safe by cutting down the masts and anchoring the ship. So it's literally spinning around, but it's not being sent into the rocks. And as they sail back, they see countless ships have been destroyed by this. He's remarkable. Uh, but he's also his own best press agent. Uh, he writes poems, let alone reports. He's constantly sending suggestions how to make the Navy better. And they're good suggestions uh, to anybody like Robert Morris or Franklin who you know he can listen to. But uh, he also is somebody who's not popular with his men quite often, and certainly not always his officers. Well, he was kind of a celebrity in Paris? Oh, yeah. He, at one point, he's as big as, as, uh, as Franklin, after the Benam Richard defeats the Serapis. And he's conducted a couple of raids along the British coast, uh, a couple of which were much more their impact was was actually bigger in the press and regarding morale than it actually was in actual captures. But uh, the fact that somebody's doing this in the British Lion's backyard was what fascinated the French. Uh, King Louis makes him a chevalier, knights him, and he has to get permission from Congress to accept the honor, which they give him. Uh, he's quite a ladies' man, um, but he uh, uh, he drove Franklin nuts more than an occasion with, with things, that just as, not so much as what he did, but what he would not do sometimes. But their relationship is, is really, it, you know, it is like an exacerbated father. At one point he goes, I can't believe you're doing this. And if you did this, you'd be a great captain. And it really hurts Jones because he, he, Franklin's opinion of him matters as much as anybody's. When the American Navy had ships with names like the Lexington and the uh, America, mm -hmm. how did he get a ship called the Bonhomme Richard? It's a French ship. It's an old French East Indiaman, which were these huge hulks. They were giant, you know, uh, ships to carry tea and supplies from anywhere from, you know, going around to the Red Sea, to India, to, you know, the, the America, to the New World. <clears throat> and this is a ship called the Duc de Duras. And it has been deemed by the French East India Company to be no longer seaworthy. So once King Louis finds out that this is no longer a good merchant ship, he says to Franklin, well, we'll give it to Jones. And Jones refits it as a, a warship. It's, uh, it's funny because Jones is the guy who makes the quote about having a fast ship. And his most famous battle, or probably most famous battle in the United States in, in, the, in American naval history, is with this French ship that, that basically is sailing sidewise half the time like a crab and doesn't survive its great battle. It's, it sinks the day after. But uh, Jones actually gives it its name, and it's a tribute to Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. The, the translation would be Bonhomme Richard, and hence the title. Can you pick a battle and use it to describe how battles happened? Like, what was a sea battle like? Did they Were they just sailing along and said, hey, there's a British ship and, and start fighting, or did they know where they were? And, uh, they, and, then, and then how did the <clears> battle <throat> unfold? That's a great question. Uh, usually you were trying to size up once you saw a ship in the distance to see if it was a warship or merchantman or whichever. So you just stumble across them as you sailed You'd around? see them sail over the horizon. Uh, sometimes you were after a particular ship or somebody was after you. Uh, that certainly happened, and, and once a British warship usually spied, you know, a strange sail, it, it went after them, you know, to see who it is and let's see if we can take them. 
And a lot of the American naval captains like Nicholas Spittle, like Barry, and obviously Jones, they did the same thing. But you would size up not just the ship, but also the conditions. Who had the weather gauge, you know, in terms of the wind? Like if a ship is sailing in one direction and you're heading another, or if you're right behind someone, who has control of, whoever has control of the wind pretty much has control of the engagement. So they would look very hard to make sure <clears throat> they were doing, like, it's almost like a, a Western where you watch two gunfighters step out into the street and they're looking at the sun, you know, they, you know who's going to have the sun in their eyes, that this is the same thing that they did. Um, you then tried to angle yourself so that you could fire the most effective broadsides. And the object at all points was could you maneuver in a situation to do what they called crossing the T, which was that your ship could sail either across an enemy ship's bow or stern where they're completely, for that split couple of seconds, they're completely defenseless. So their guns invulnerable. are pointing out. And their guns are pointing out. You may have a bow chaser or stern chaser that you can, you can use, but not the full broadside of a, of a ship. And uh, it was a lot of angling going involved in terms of who to get the advantage and how to get it, and it could change. Um, Flamborough Head's not a classic sea battle because of the conditions, but it's certainly a, 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 a great example of how a captain made the most of his situation. Uh, the Serapis that uh, Jones was up against was much faster, uh, better armed, uh, the, the, the men much more skilled at their whether in sailing or in, in the gun crews. Uh, but Jones isn't about to, to give up with this. And he finally gets a point where the wind just changes his way and then winds up literally lashing the Benami Shard, the Serapis. And this deathly embrace where after the battle, some of the people said, you could, you could drive a carriage through the holes in the hulls of, of these vessels. When they would fire their guns, uh, did they fire them all at once? They, if they could, but they could also fire them in sequence. Uh, you know, you're, you're, if you're passing a ship who's crossing the T, you know, you want to make sure that each shot counts. So they would elevate them and, and have them aimed in the best way, but you could certainly do a, a raking thing where bang, 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 bang across. <coughs> but uh, they tried to use the most you know, throw the most metal they could at the most opportune time. How good was their aim? Uh, not too good at the beginning of the war, but thanks to captains like Jones and Barry and Biddle and, and Weeks and, and even Cunningham with his small ship, uh, they got quite good at it. And Nicholas's Biddle's battle with a British ship of the line, uh, he has a frigate called the, Arm, uh, the Randolph and he's fighting a ship of the line, the Armouth. Uh, the, the captain, the British captain reported at one point the Americans were firing, you know, two or three broadsides to his one. That was how well Biddle had trained his men. How often would an enemy ship actually sink as opposed to being damaged in surrender? <sighs> not that often. The main goal was not to sink the ship but to capture it. Uh, and there was also a bit of etiquette involved with it, Brian. There's a couple of occasions. There's a couple of New England commanders, John Manley and Hector McNeil, and they're like the odd couple of the Continental Navy. I mean, they really, oh, hell, they can't stand each other. I mean, <coughs> there's one point where McNeil saves Manley's bacon, as he puts it, and Manley's very appreciative. But the very next day, they get in a battle where Manley's ship is doing most of the fighting, and then McNeil comes along, fires a broadside, 
the, sh the thing ends and he immediately sends the prize crew over. It's like, you know, I'm the last one to get to the dance, but I'm going to dance with the prettiest girl. Uh, but in one battle, McNeil calls over to the British captain, you know, your rigging's on fire. And, you know, that a, a, a wad had gone with the, the cannonball and that, you know, things were burning. And, and oh, okay, thank you. And they stop until that's done. And that's even done at one point with the Benam Richard. They both agree, since both ships are burning, to, you know, stop for a minute to try to put the fires out. And during one of them, the Jones is sitting on a chicken coop watching all this. I mean, the image of it is terrific. I was an eight-year-old boy when I saw the Robert Stack movie, which is basically him playing Elliot Ness as, as John Paul Jones. But you keep thinking about uh, what a great visual image that is. Here's this little bantam guy who's not going to give up. He'll, be, he'll lose everything before he surrenders. And there's a break in it, and he's sitting on a chicken coop. So there was still fighting, naval battles going on after Yorktown, after Cornwallis yes. oh, surrendered. Yeah. Yeah. The war didn't end? Right? <clears throat> no. Well, that doesn't end the war, as you know. There's still a couple more years to go. It's the last major land battle, you know, fought. But the naval war still goes on. You know, we're, we're still at war until the Treaty of Paris is signed and the American states get notice of it, which is weeks after that. In fact, the last battle of the Continental Navy is fought six weeks after the uh, peace has been signed, but the, nobody knows it yet, being down in the Caribbean. How much communication went back and forth between Philadelphia when it was the Continental Congress and London? I mean, you talked about the George Washington sending messages about hanging them. Is there a regular contact? Not that much. More of the, con more of the correspondence was between Paris and London. Uh, when Jones writes the letter, he's writing it to the British Commander-in-Chief Clinton, you know, saying this is what we intend to do. Uh, but there, there was correspondence back and forth. There's a couple of instances that uh, during the war where, uh, when right before uh, the Battle of Brandywine and the, the, uh, actually before the battles at Trenton, where congressmen go to meet with General Howe and Admiral Howe to t discuss can we end this somehow in a way that we'll all be happy? Uh, so there's constantly, you know, conversations going back and forth. When Congress writes to Commodore Collier about Cunningham's situation, they get a letter back from Collier's secretary because it's beneath him to write a personal note to these congressional rebels. They're rebels. They can say they're lawmakers, but they're still rebels. So his secretary writes a letter saying, we treated Cunningham the way a person in his condition deserves to be treated. You know, he didn't have his commission. He's a rebel against king and country, and he's getting what he deserves. So, you know, the, you know, there wasn't all this, hey, you think we can work this out all the time? Quite often it was more, oh, yeah, well, so's your mom, you know, that sort of thing. Did American ships bombard the mainland in England at all, coastal towns? No. The closest that they came to that was Jones raids the town of the, the village of Whitehaven. And uh, he is from that area of Scotland. Uh, he grew up there. He's got a bone to pick because he had an issue as a merchant captain where the laird of the estate that he was born on takes the side of another family against Jones. This is like in 1770. So Jones's visit is not just so much tactical, it is a personal, I'll show them. And uh, 
it doesn't really go as, as like he planned. He wanted to burn all the merchant shipping, and he succeeds in burning a couple of, of coal, coal ships, a couple of colliers, but even th those fires are put out. But he is specific that we are not going to, you know, bombard the town. We are going to treat them the way we should have been treated. And the Whig press, the Whigs being the anti-war element with Edmund Burke in Parliament of the British government, make a point to editorialize on more than one occasion that the Americans are treating us much better than we are treating them. And one editorial or whatever calls Lord Germain old twitchy for the Earl of Sandwich, and he says, uh, they also say, uh, we're being treated better than we deserve. We only have about a minute left, and we've barely mentioned John Barry, so if people want to know more about him, they have to read your other book just about John Barry. But I want to, can, you, can you do a one-minute version of the story about John Barry finding himself in a, a sea of icebergs? Sure. Uh, briefly, uh, he's got command of the Alliance, which was the finest frigate built by America, and it's had a history of bad luck. A Frenchman, Pierre Lande, and then John Paul Jones, uh, both had very unsuccessful results with that ship. He's on a diplomatic mission. He's bringing Thomas Paine and uh, uh, John Lawrence, uh, one of Washington's aides, to France to beg for more money from the French government. And they wake up in the North Atlantic one morning where there are icebergs dead ahead, no icebergs to port, no icebergs to starboard, no icebergs to stern. And Barry summoned from the, and just the sheer terror of the fact that the, you know, there's nothing they can do. It's a wooden ship, and they're, they've got their fenders aren't these plastic things we put along the sides of ships when we dock now, but they're big bags of canvas. They're taking spars and everything else and trying to what they can do to keep it away. And uh, miraculously, it sails through, you know, all of this in an overnight. Thomas Paine writes that this will not be worn very easily from our memories. But he writes such a very graphic letter, which we basically just took and said, pop it in both books because it's in, in, you know, uh, important to the story. You really feel at the end that the only thing you're missing is Celine Dion singing at the end of the thing <laughs> as to how it went. Well, I wish we had more time because we have barely scratched the surface of this fascinating book, Give Me a Ship, Give Me a Fast Ship, The Continental Navy and America's Revolution at Sea. Tim McGrath, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian, very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.